which comes to us uh, from Acts chapter 8. Again, we turn uh, to uh, this book of Luke, uh, Acts, uh, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 8, reading through verse 8. Again, hear the word of the Lord. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are truly the God over all things. And dear God, we pray uh, through this Word that You will apply these words under our hearts, that You might give us more light and understanding. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As I told the children, this scene here in Acts chapter 8 is an amazing testimony to the power of God. It's an amazing testimony to the way that our Lord often and always brings His glory out of trial and tribulation. Those words that Joseph spoke to his brothers in Egypt are quite appropriate here. You know, what Saul and the Sanhedrin has meant for evil, truly God has used for good. And as I also spoke to the children, it's, it, it's usually the case that while we are going through those trials, we often cannot see what God can see. We, we can't usually ascertain in the moment what exactly God is doing through this time. But one of the blessings of providence is that we can look back at those moments in our lives and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can see how God was working in those days. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that you are one of these people who were living in Jerusalem, minding your own business, when Saul came knocking at your door. And you can rest assured that Saul isn't coming by himself. It's not as if they could have looked out the window and seen this guy going door to door and gone somewhere in the back of the house and pretended that they weren't home. Saul had come with armed men. Saul had come with the agents of the state. And they were coming 
without uh, knocking. They were wrecking havoc in these homes. Um, quite uh, appropriately, when we think about this, you know, the, the people in these homes uh, would have had no warning that Paul, uh, that Saul here, was coming. And they would have been sitting in their couches or wherever and been shocked at this event. Saul would have come in the door and pointed his finger in their face and asked them, Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you rest in this man from Nazareth? Imagine for a moment you're sitting there and you're given a second to say whether you do or you don't. And what happens to those who confess Jesus Christ? Either, as we hear here, they are committed to prison or they flee and are forced out of the country, out of their homes, out of the city that they have known for their entire lives. Again, as you are running up the street, as you're fleeing from Saul, your first thought isn't, wow, this is an excellent opportunity to reach these people I might run into with the gospel. But that is in fact what we see happening in this passage. And so, again, imagine you're one of these people and you have been given the opportunity to read Luke's account of something that happened to you. And you're reading here in Acts, and as you're coming to the point, you, 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 you realize that he's talking about you. And you see this, and it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And you think back to the moment that you spent in prison for your confession of Christ. And as you're reading this, you see that, that others were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And what did they do as they went out? It says here that those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. And we see here as Philip, one of those who was scattered, is preaching Christ to them. And what does he see? He sees conversions. He sees men and women of Samaria coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And as you're reading this, as you're one of these individuals, you, 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 you cannot but have the same reaction that the people of Samaria do. And there was great joy in that city. Because again, it's not enough to just know that God's in charge. A lot of religions believe God's in charge. A lot of religions believe their God is in charge of all things. But what makes our God different? It's this knowledge that our God is sovereign all things for His glory. It's this knowledge that all things are happening unto us, not only for His glory, but for the blessing of His work in the Gospel. Again, when we're going through these times of trial, it's not even expected in God's Word that we'll automatically understand that. But one of the blessings we have is the way that the Holy Spirit works in us, not only to bear with us during those times, but to bring to mind this knowledge of God's goodness in times of trouble. And that's one of the main points that Luke is trying to get across in this portion of God's Word. 
Because again, remember, who is the audience? Who, who is Luke writing to? Well, remember way back at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it says there uh, that he's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to this, this young man who wants to know more about Jesus. And so in the Gospel of Luke, he records all the events of Jesus' life. But he knows that's not all that Theophilus needs to know. So he writes this second book, this book of Acts, and he begins the book of Acts in the same way, telling Theophilus about the works that the apostles did after Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, after He had ascended into heaven. And so that's why Luke spends time giving these testimonies of faith. That's why he spends time showing the real world effect of faith in Jesus Christ. That it's not, as uh, the old Marine Corps poster said so well, you know, we did not promise you a rose garden. What we see here is the reality of the Christian faith. Is that the world will not stand still in the midst of that testimony. That the enemies of Christ will not kind of rejoice at the fact that you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but will use all manner of instruments to cause you to deny Jesus. And of course, we know that we, and we have seen both examples. We have seen those who have confessed Christ and when the times got tough, stepped away from the Lord Jesus. We've seen those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and have returned back to the former manner of life because Jesus was not who they thought He was. You know, John chapter 6 is, is one of the clearest examples of this. You know, Jesus has, has just performed this amazing miracle. This amazing wonder in the feeding of the 5,000. And many are following after Jesus. They're, they're running after Him. And what does Jesus do? He does you know, something unexpected. He turns to them and tells them that they're not following Him for the right reasons. You know, he tells them, look, you're coming after me because what you want is bread and fish. You want to be fed in your belly. You want to not have to work for your food anymore. You want these things that are of the earth. You want me to bless you in a material way. But that's not what I've come to do. And when Jesus speaks to them this way, what do they do? Well, they turn around and leave. We hear thousands of these disciples go back to their homes, leaving Jesus just with the disciples. And what does Jesus do? He turns around to the disciples and says, Well, why don't you leave too? Why are you still here? And of course, Peter turns to Jesus and, and speaks with those wonderful words, Jesus, where can we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And brothers and sisters, those words of, of uh, Peter there, it, uh, we can see them in action in these folks in Acts chapter 8. Again, what can the world provide for these people? Well, they know that the world can provide nothing for them. That their home is not Jerusalem. 
Their home is not Samaria. Their home is not the four walls in which uh, they happen to live on whatever street in these towns. But their home is in heaven above. That they are seeking a better country. That their citizenship is in heaven. So what does it matter if Saul comes into their house waving his finger at them, threatening them with earthly uh, violence and earthly things? For what can Saul do to them? What power does Saul have over them? He has no power. He has no authority over these men and women because they don't belong to Saul. They belong, body and soul, to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, in this witness that we see here of these, uh, of these young men and women uh, who are willing to stand in the face of Saul and testify that they believe in the Lord Jesus is an example to each and every one of us. Now again, we don't have to worry about the police beating our door down and taking us to prison. It's not a concern in 2019 in Clover, South Carolina. That's not something that we have to worry about. You know, when we're driving down the road, we're not going to get pulled over by the state police and asked who we have our faith and trust in. But the reality is, is that we face this question each and every day of our lives. How often when we're at work or at school or, or, or even at the store or wherever are, are, are brought to confess Jesus. Now again, we're not asked to say whether or not we believe in Jesus Christ. But we are brought to bear whether or not our lives are going to testify to that reality. Do we trust in the wisdom of God? Do we trust in the law that He has laid forth? Do we trust in the uh, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? Again, are we going to be willing to stand in the face of a friends or family or co-workers who are asking you to commit sin? Again, those are the kinds of things that we face from day to day. And again, we don't have to necessarily fear going to prison in, in those situations. But the, the, the stakes being what they are, the reality is the same. And that's one of the things we can learn from this passage. It's one of the things we can learn from the example of these faithful men and women. And that's another thing we can also see in the midst of kind of the secondary story that's going on in this passage. You know, it's interesting how Luke will often do this, kind of tell two stories at the same time. You know, he's not only talking about the persecution of Saul and the faithful who have been spread to the four winds, but we also have this uh, reminder of what had taken place in chapter 7. You know, the death of uh, this man, Stephen, who had also confess Christ to the death. You know, first of all, we uh, hear that Saul was consenting to his death. Now what that means is that Saul was a witness. And not just kind of all he happened to be hanging around witness, but he was a legal witness to what had taken place. You know, that's why the word consenting is used here. 
And it's not just that he was in favor of it, but he was actually legally involved in the death of Stephen. And of course, we understand that because Saul, later Paul, testifies to this reality. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul will say, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You know, again, we hear Paul in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Again, Saul here is actively involved in this work. One of the things that's interesting about what we see Saul doing here is, of course, remembering who his teacher was. We will hear later on in Galatians that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And if you remember back in the book of Acts, we've already heard about Gamaliel. You remember how the Sanhedrin was having a discussion about what to do with these Christians. How are we to handle these men and women who are going after Jesus of Nazareth and denying the teachings of the fathers? And of course, most of the Sanhedrin wanted to kill them. But Gamaliel stood up, as you remember, and said, Well, if they are a, a false uh, followers, if they follow a false teacher, then they will die out like all the other false teachers had. And their sects and their churches have gone away. But if He is truly the Son of God, the Messiah, then there is nothing that we can do to stop Him. So it's interesting here that Saul, who sat at the feet of this man who, 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 who called for peace and tolerance and mercy, is the one leading the persecution of the church. And it's an important thing to think of as we consider Paul later on in the book of Acts and as we see his mighty conversion. And one of the things we'll see there again is the way in which the providence of God was even working in the teaching of Gamaliel into the heart of Paul. But again, we see here Saul is active in this death. And then we see that devout men, in verse 2, carry Stephen to his burial. And made great lamentation over him. And why does Luke tell us about this? You know, it seemed as if Luke had kind of moved on in the story and it had turned towards the events that were happening outside of Jerusalem. But he takes a moment to tell us what the faithful did with Stephen. And it says here, and devout men carry Stephen to his burial. Now what's important about this? Again, why does Luke give us this detail? Well again, one of the things that separated the Christian church from their pagan neighbors is the care that they took with the body. Because again, one of the false teachings that Paul will deal with later, uh, the, the doctrine of the Gnostics, was that the body was evil. That the flesh uh, was evil in itself. And that what salvation was, was removal of the soul from the prison house of the body. And so what happened to the body after death didn't matter because it, it's not worth anything. What we see here is Luke teaching us about our own physical bodies. Teaching us about the importance of burial after death. 
That ordinarily, uh, the Christian is to be buried after death. And why is this the case? Why does this matter? And the purpose here is a testimony again of faith in Jesus Christ. Of faith in what redemption means. That redemption is not just the saving of our souls, but the saving of our entire person. A body and soul. And we heard Paul talk about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, we who have been sown in corruption have put on incorruption. Again, our bodies, uh, which uh, in the flesh are sinful and wicked because of the curse of Adam. Again, the removal of that curse is not just again that our souls are made right with God, but our bodies as well are made right with God. Because again, in the second coming, when our bodies are reunited with our souls, again, our bodies will come out of these graves, for those of you who are going to be buried here, again, they will come out of this cemetery, and they will go into the presence of Christ. And that's why we take care of the bodies of our dead. Because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we believe in the sanctity of the body of the way in which it was created by the hand of our God. Again, when God creates man on on the sixth day, what does He say? Again, He forms it out of the dust of the earth and He breathes life into it. And He says this creation is very good. And again, we see in this burial another example of this public testimony of Jesus Christ. Just as the people who were being dragged out of their homes were being forced to testify to Jesus. We see the burial of Stephen and the lamentation made. A public statement that they trusted not in the false gods of Judaism and the false gods of the world, but rested and trusted in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is something that's not a New Testament idea. You know, one of the great themes of the Exodus is uh, the way in which the people of God carried Joseph out of Egypt and into the land of promise. In Joshua 24, uh, we're told the bones of Joseph with the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt. They buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And that word there, inheritance, is is a vital part of our faith in Jesus Christ. Because again, what have we received in the work of the Gospel? We haven't received the inheritance promised to Abraham. We've received the inheritance of the promise made to Adam and to Eve. We've received this covenantal truth that has been handed down from generation to generation to generation. And the burial of Joseph is a testimony to the fact that Israel understands this notion. And so when we bury our dead, we are continuing to testify of this inheritance, of this reality of God's hand upon His people from generation to generation to generation. Again, why do we baptize our children? Again, it's for the same reason. It's an understanding 
that we have received something from our forefathers. And we are carrying on uh, that blessing again to our children and our children's children and to our great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Because again, that promise is not for just one generation or another, but for every uh, generation that comes uh, from above. And that's why it's important here as we close this morning to, to think about the content of the preaching of these people. Again, as they're going out into the lands, into the places uh, that God has prepared for them, what do we hear that they're preaching? Again, Philip gives us a particular statement about this. It says there in verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And if there's a word in the Bible that we can use to summarize everything that we believe, it is the word Christ. Because what does that word mean? What does it represent for us? Again, it represents everything that moves us to deny the world and look unto the heavens. Because in the word Christ, we have there the testimony of the forgiveness of sins. In the word Christ, we have the testimony uh, that God is our God and that we are His children. And Jesus Christ being the Son of the living and the true God. Jesus Christ being the bearer of the promise that God had made to our forefathers. Jesus Christ being the bearer of that reality that awaits us in the heavenly places. Again, the entirety of the Christian faith can be summarized in that word. And that's important to consider again what the Apostle Paul will later say he has done at Ephesus. That he has declared to them the whole counsel of God. And when he says that to the Ephesian elders, you'll notice in Acts chapter 20 that he summarizes all those things by saying that he has preached to them Christ and Him crucified. Again, the the fullness of the Gospel is is in our Savior. It is in uh, the glory of our Redeemer. Again, when we say we are Christians... We're saying something not only about who we are, but who our Redeemer is. That we belong to Him. That we are identified with Him. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 will talk at length about what this identity means. That we who are called Christians... Are, are, are called this not only because we happen to have a title on our shirt, you know, as if that's how we're identified, you know, as a, with a little word mark on our clothing, but that we belong body and soul to this Savior. That we belong uh, spiritually united to Him by faith. Again, this testimony that we see that Philip is preaching to the Sumerians is received by them. And what's one of the reasons why it's received by the people of Samaria? Well, remember, who had gone before them to Samaria? Remember the scene in John chapter 4. Jesus goes and He meets the woman at the well there. Remember how the woman at the well runs from the well saying, I've met this man who has told me everything that I've ever done. 
And, and so they, the man then come to Jesus and Jesus speaks to them. Again, He has planted the seeds in Samaria. And one of the witnesses we are to take from that example is not that Jesus has physically gone everywhere in the world before us, but the knowledge and understanding that when we go out onto a world that is denied Christ crucified, when we speak to our neighbors, when we speak to friends and family who deny Christ, we do so with the knowledge that Christ has gone before us. Either in the way that the world itself testifies to the glory of God, or in the way that the Word of God has become ubiquitous around us. Again, this is the confidence, this is the assurance that we can have when we speak Christ to those who are near unto us, knowing that Christ is the one who is doing the work. What is our call? What is our responsibility? What are we supposed to do? Again, what does Philip do? What do these uh, Christians, these men and women who have been spread to the four winds do? Well, they preach Christ to them. They speak to them of the Lord of glory. Again, they testify to them of what Christ has revealed to them. And that's why, again, we uh, can rest in these gospel conversations we have. Because again, we don't have to be magical orators. We don't have to be amazing apologists to talk to people about Christ. For we have been given in the Word of the Lord our God all that we need to talk to our brothers and sisters about the salvation of sinners. About the redemption of those dead in sin and who are made alive in Jesus Christ. And let us rest and trust in the sufficiency of what God has given to us. Let us rest and trust in the fullness of the message that we've been given to share. And let us remember and see the example of those who have gone before us. Who have gone out into a world which, which continues to act in rebellion against the Lord our God. And let us know with the assurance that we see uh, these men who lament over Stephen and, these, and Philip and others who have gone out unto the world. Let us know again with that assurance that we have received from above that our God is not just in charge, but our God has gone before us ordaining all things in accordance with His glory and for the blessing of His people. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give